Paul was Christianity's most prolific missionary. You know, throughout the centuries, people have marveled at Paul's brain, his vast intellect, his heart, his deep passion for people, his shoulders, his sense of responsibility for the churches, his back, the beatings that he suffered for the sake of Jesus. But never underestimate Paul's feet. Paul crisscrossed the Roman Empire four different times. In the portion of Acts that covers his travels, 40 cities are mentioned by name. His three missionary campaigns logged more than 8,100 miles and kept him on the road for more than a decade. Imagine all of the stamps on Paul's passport. Author Oswald Sanders, he writes this, Other missionaries have opened continents to the gospel. Paul opened the world. Tonight we embark on Paul's first missionary journey, which took him nearly three years. It won't take us that long to hit the highlights. Acts chapter 13. Now in the church that was at Antioch, and notice the shift. Up until now, the church at Jerusalem has been the center of the Jesus movement. But now headquarters shifts northward to the church at Antioch. And also notice Paul now replaces Peter at center stage. You remember Peter was the apostle to the Jews, while Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Antioch was the gateway to the West. And Antioch became the hub for the gospel spread among the Gentiles, primarily through the ministry of Paul. Verse 1 continues, Now the church that was at Antioch, in the church at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. And the first mentioned was Barnabas. You remember that name? It means son of encouragement. In Acts chapter 11, we learn that Barnabas was an early leader in the Antioch church. Second, Simeon, who was called Niger. Simeon's nickname Niger means black. He could have been from Africa, perhaps present-day Nigeria. He also mentions Lucius of Cyrene. You remember Simon was the man who carried the cross for Jesus. We call him Simon the Cyrene. He was from this same area in North Africa. Perhaps Simon actually witnessed to Lucius. You know, I think it is important to note the role that black people played in the early church. You remember the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 was also a black man. Here in the church at Antioch, two black men will lay hands on Paul and launch his ministry. You know, it's interesting to me that many of the most famous early church fathers were of African descent. Did you know that Augustine was black? His mother, Monica, was a Berber and had dark skin. Athanasius, who helped put down and defeat the Arian heresy, was known as the black dwarf because of his dark skin and his small stature. The early Christian apologist Tertullian was from North Africa, and he too was probably black. You know, often people like to tell us that Africans were first exposed to Christianity on the slave plantations here in America. Not so. Blacks were among the apostles and prophets who laid a foundation for the early church. In fact, the gospel came to a black Africa years before it arrived in a white Europe. Well, there were other leaders there in Antioch. He mentions Manan, 
who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Now this Herod was the wicked Antipas. He was the man who had John the Baptist beheaded. He actually married his brother's wife, Herodias, and lived in open, defiant immorality. Jesus called this fella a fox. Wasn't a flattering term. Herod and Menaean, they started out either close friends or relatives. They knew each other from childhood. But somewhere along the line, their paths split. Menaean's conscience was saved, whereas Antipas's conscience was seared. And then last on this list was Saul. Soon his name will change to Paul. Verse 2 tells us what they were doing. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now the rest of Acts is going to track Paul's exploits all the way to Rome. He is going to shake the world for Jesus, but never forget it all starts in a prayer meeting at Antioch. And notice why the church had gathered. We're told they ministered to the Lord. You know, we think of Paul ministering for the Lord. But notice first he ministered to the Lord. What a joy it is for you and I to know that we as finite human beings can actually make the infinite God happy and glad. Just by pouring out our love to Him, singing His praise, we can minister to God. That's incredible. God saves us not just to serve, but to be and spend time with Him. It's interesting to me, the church had gathered not to seek anything from God. Instead, they're just giving their praise and their time and their worship and their thoughts to God. And yet it was on such an occasion that the Holy Spirit spoke to the church. Separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. And of course, the question usually arises, how did the Spirit speak? Was it an audible voice? Maybe some handwriting on the wall? Maybe it was just an inner witness. We're really not sure. But there is a clue. Notice verse 1. Some of the men praying were prophets. The Spirit may have spoken through one of them in an extemporaneous message, a divine utterance. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. And I really like this. You know, since his conversion, Paul knew that he was going to have a ministry to the Gentiles. But notice he waited to go until he had been sent by a local church. I'm afraid that too many Christians, they launch ministries on their own without the confirmation and support and prayers of their church. Remember, Paul didn't just went, he was sent. And there's a difference. Behind all his efforts will be a praying church. And so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. This was the port nearest Antioch. Remember, Antioch was up the Orontes River. And so they went down to the coast, to the port city of Seleucus. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. Cyprus is an island in the Mediterranean Sea. It's south of Turkey and west of Lebanon. And when they arrived in Salamis... This was the port city on the eastern end of the island of Cyprus. There they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And this will be Paul's reoccurring pattern everywhere he goes. In fact, he modeled it after Jesus. In every city, he delivers the gospel first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. 
We're told they also had John as their assistant. He goes by another name too. Mark is his name in Acts chapter 12 verse 25. We often call him John Mark. Colossians 4 verse 10 tells us that John Mark was Barnabas' nephew. And so along with Paul and Uncle Barnabas, John Mark took off on the trip. Verse 6. Now when they had gone through the island to Paphos. Now Paphos was the capital city of Cyprus at the west end of the island, 90 miles from Salamis. Apparently Paul and his pals, they hiked widthwise all the way across Cyprus. And at Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, which is translated son of Jesus. He was actually a son of the devil. That's what he was. Who was the, with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Now, Sergius Paulus was the Roman authority on the island. And it's interesting that Luke calls him intelligent. You know, you always show your smarts when you desire to hear the word of God. That's what he did. He called Paul and Barnabas to preach to him. But this Bar-Jesus, this Elymas, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. This word Elymas is Arabic for sorcerer. This man, Bar-Jesus, was Sergius Apollos' spiritual advisor. I'm sure he claimed to channel dead, dead spirits and predict the future. He probably read a crystal ball. In reality, he consorted with demons. This Bar-Jesus was to Sergius Paulus what Jean Houston was to Hillary Clinton. You remember her? Or Joan Quigley was to Nancy Reagan. You know, it's sad whenever public officials turn to psychics rather than to God's word for the truth. Well, here Bar-Jesus, he knows that if his client begins to hear God's word, he's going to be out of a job because Christianity and the occult can never coexist. And so he opposes Saul. Verse 9, Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately, a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Boy, here's a kind of teaching that will open your eyes. <laughs> it did for the governor. You remember, this is also what it took for Paul to see the truth. You remember? On the road to Damascus, God blinded him with a brilliant light. It opened his eyes. It caused him to seek the Lord. Now he does the sorcerer the same favor. He turns out the physical lights to help him see spiritually. You know, just a side note. It's in verse 9 that Saul's name is changed to Paul. Saul meant the requested one. Saul was the man in demand. 
Paul means little. And I think this name change marked a change in attitude. Now that he knows the Lord, now that he's been put in his place, now that that bright light has knocked him off his high horse, Saul goes from haughty to humble. He knows he's now no longer the big man on campus. That belongs to Jesus. Well, verse 13. Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia. In other words, they docked on Turkey's southern coast. And John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Now, why in the world does John Mark leave? It seems they're just getting started. Maybe it was the persecution. That could have been part of it. Maybe it was the rigors of travel. John Mark wasn't quite up to it. Perhaps as a Jew, he had doubts about preaching now to cities of the Gentiles. It's interesting, the early church father, Chrysostom, he said this, the lad wanted his mother. But a more likely answer may be tied to the phrase here, Paul and his party. For up until now, it's been Barnabas and Saul. But over the winter that they've spent in Cyprus, Paul has assumed some leadership. It's now Paul and his party. After this first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas are going to split company. This here may have been the first crack in that breakup. Perhaps Mark saw Paul taking charge, and he was jealous for his uncle's sake. If so, it wouldn't be the last time that envy has sabotaged ministry. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. Now, there were actually seven different Antiochs in the ancient world. It was a popular name. Paul's group had originated in Antioch in Syria. Now they are in Antioch in Pisidia or in Galatia. Notice, though, what they've done. They landed in Perga, which was a seaside city. But there's no record of any ministry there. Instead, they immediately journey 100 miles and they climb 3,600 feet to the mountain village of Antioch. Sounds strange to you? Does to me. Why wouldn't you have ministered along the coast in that beautiful seaside town? Why, did they, why didn't they teach and preach in Perga before the climb up into the mountains? Well, Paul will later write to these same people. He writes them a letter. It's called the letter to the Galatians. And in Galatians 4, verse 13, this is what he pins. He says, you know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. Why did he make that climb to Antioch to go into Galatia? Why didn't he stay there in Pamphylia on the coast? He said it was because of some physical infirmity. It seems some physical ailment drove Paul out of the tropical climate of Pamphylia and caused him to seek the higher ground of Galatia. Now it's true, coastal Turkey was known in ancient times for a deadly strain of malaria. People who contracted this malaria said it was like a red-hot bar being thrust right through your forehead. That was, the pain was so intense. Some early traditions say that this was Paul's thorn in the flesh. He suffered from migraine headaches that had been caused by this malaria that he'd picked up. 
In his letter to the Galatians, Paul also notes their love for him. And he says, it was so strong that you guys would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Apparently, while he was in Galatia, he needed new eyes. He was suffering some eye problem. It's reasonable that he suffered some sort of eye disease. Perhaps his condition was tied to this malaria and the headaches. It got triggered whenever he was in the heat and humidity of a tropical climate next to the ocean. We don't know what it was, but something caused Paul to head straight to Antioch. When he arrived, after reading of the Law and the Prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Many brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Every preacher likes to hear those words. Tell a preacher to say on, and it's like saying, sick him to a bulldog. Keep talking, man. Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. Hey, do, do you know anybody who can't talk without moving their hands? I'm trying to hold my hands. You know anybody who just can't talk without moving their hands in some way? It's interesting, several times in the book of Acts, we're told that as Paul spoke, he motioned with his hand. Apparently, Paul was one of those guys. He speaks to the Jews in verse 17. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And they were along 40 years. This king Saul, he lived for the people's approval. The Saul speaking lived only for to please the Lord. And when he had removed King Saul, he raised up for them David as king, a better choice, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, and will do all my will. Paul is speaking to Jews, and so what does he do? He recounts God's intervention in their history. Now, you remember who else followed this same strategy? Stephen, back in Acts chapter 7. And recall who was in the crowd to which Stephen spoke? Saul, the same Saul. Paul is actually following a similar sermon pattern as the one used by Stephen. Hey, I'll bet you when Stephen was preaching and they were stoning him, he wondered if anybody heard a word. Well, someone did. Someone took note. Always remember God's promise in Isaiah 55. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void. And it shall accomplish what I please. And it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Next time you share God's word and you think it's falling on deaf ears, remember Saul and Stephen. Share God's word. It never fails. It always comes home to roost. 
Well, in his sermon, Paul gets to King David, a man after God's own heart. And he says in verse 23, for this man's seed, and this was so significant, for God made promises to the descendants of David, to one particular descendant especially. In fact, this was the purpose of the genealogies we find in Matthew and Luke. Jesus was a branch on David's family tree. Here Paul is saying that all Jewish history led up to David's seed, to this promised king. God promised David a descendant who would be an eternal king, who would reign over an eternal kingdom. The Hebrews came to call this person the Messiah. He would save Israel and he would rule the world. And now Paul points to Jesus Jesus is the one that was promised to David. He says, Jesus, who was according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. And then he says, after John had first preached, before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John was finishing his course, he said, who do you think I, who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandal of whose feet I am not worthy to lose. Even John himself bowed to none other than Jesus. Verse 26. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and those who fear God. Notice who he's speaking to now. He's speaking to the Jews, sons of the family of Abraham, but he's also speaking to those who fear God. And this is a different group. We call them the God-fearers. You remember, in every town there were Gentiles, like Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, who sought the one true God. They weren't Jews, but they had embraced the God of the Jews. They were God-fearers. Paul is addressing both Jews and these God-fearers. He says, to whom the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voice of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. Here Paul points out that the Old Testament predicted that Messiah would be rejected by his own people. In fact, Psalm 69 verse 8, the Messiah himself cries out prophetically. He says, I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. Here Paul says the Jews who weakly read this prediction fulfilled it anyway. They went ahead and they condemned Jesus. He was rejected by his own brothers. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Notice the cross his sufferings, his passion, had been written ahead of time concerning him. Paul even says the crucifixion was played out according to God's script, your scripture. In fact, you can put Psalm 22. This would be a good exercise when you get home. Take Psalm 22. Take Isaiah 53. Take Matthew 27. And put the three chapters side by side. And every detail from his bloody back, to the spikes in his hands and feet, 
to the soldiers shooting craps for his coat. They were all told beforehand by the prophets. Verse 30, though, records the greatest miracle. But God raised him up from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he has raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son today, or you are my son today, I have begotten you. Notice this speaks of his resurrection, not his birth. Jesus was begotten, or given life a second time when God raised him from the dead. He was begotten again. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken thus. I will give you the sure mercies of David. Now, others understand, other people have been raised from the dead. Elijah, he raised a widow's son. Or Elisha. Jesus raised three corpses, if you remember. In Acts chapter 9, Peter raised a woman from the dead. But all these folks were raised from the dead to die again. Death was delayed, but not defeated. Their bodies still rot today. You see, the only body that saw no corruption, that refuses to deteriorate, belongs to Jesus. His risen body is alive today, as alive as the day he was born. Notice verse 35. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, and here he quotes Psalm 16, verse 10. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. When David spoke these words in Psalm 16, he wasn't speaking of himself. That was obvious. This promise wasn't to David. His body turned to ash. It, it was a corruptible body. It deteriorated. It's dust today. God's Holy One was Jesus. He alone rose from the dead, never to die again. Jesus saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. He's telling Jews that observing their own law isn't going to bring them salvation. Remember, we are treated justified or just as if I'd never sinned by faith and faith alone. It's through the work of Jesus, not our works. And the resurrection is the proof. Here's why. The fact that Jesus overcame the corrupting effects of sin the deterioration of the body, that's evidence that he has the authority to forgive the penalty of sin and set us free before God. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. Now here... Paul quotes from Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 5. 
And the marvel that God did in Habakkuk's day was to use pagan Gentiles to judge his own people. The marvel, though, in Paul's day went one step further. He saved those Gentiles. And Paul is here warning the Jews, don't harden your heart. Don't miss out on God's miracle. God is changing programs. God is saving Gentiles. And the requirement is no longer keeping the Jewish law. It's by faith in Jesus. The offer is no longer just to Jews. Now it's to Gentiles. And so don't miss it. Make sure you believe as well. And so when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. The Gentiles were receptive. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas who speaking to them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Yet if you read the book of Galatians, you know that these Jews failed to continue in the grace of God. Oh, they embraced Jesus all right. But they thought in order to please God, they had to add elements of Judaism to their faith. They assumed that Jesus was not enough. Along with Jesus, you needed to be circumcised. And you needed to worship on the Sabbath. And you needed to eat a kosher diet and on and on. You see, the Jews who developed this poisonous mixture of works and grace, they were called Judaizers. They had a grace plus theology. That means to be right with God, it takes grace plus, and you can fill in the blank. Paul encourages true believers to continue in the grace of God. He writes to these Galatians, please continue trusting in God's grace, not in your own works. In Galatians 5 verse 1, he rejects the Judaizers. He tells us to stand in grace. He says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Well, verse 44. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. And contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. These Jews were used to arguing among themselves. Paul could actually draw a crowd. <laughs> the whole city came out to hear him. What did it do to the Jews? Made them jealous. I like this definition. Envy is the consuming desire to have everybody else as unsuccessful as you are. That was the Jews' attitude. Often jealousy can derail even a move of God. Well, then Paul and Barnabas, they grew bold. I like that. They grew bold. In other words, they were filled with the Spirit. And they said, it was necessary that the Word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us. And he quotes Isaiah 49, verse 6, as justification. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. The Jews were supposed to be a light to the Greeks and Romans, not an obstacle to their salvation. 
Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and they glorified the word of the Lord. They were excited. God desires to save all people, no matter their race or nationality. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Now what an interesting verse though to follow verse 48. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. You know God does desire to save everyone but not everyone gets saved. The Bible teaches two doctrines both human free will and divine election. Here's what that means. We get a choice And God gets a choice. And I'm going to make it real simple. That means everybody who ends up saved was chosen by God and made the right choice. And you can't blame God if you didn't choose right. That's your responsibility. You choose Him, and it means He chose you. Verse 49. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. Notice the mob pressured City Hall who turned around and forced Paul and Barnabas to leave. God's men split, but God's word spread. But they shook off the dust from their feet just like Jesus told them to. And they came to Iconium And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I love this. They got run out of town, but they didn't get down. Why? Because they shook the dust off their feet. They looked for the wind instead. Hey, you can't get down when you're filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. They trusted God to keep fresh wind in their sails. Whenever you're rejected for Jesus' sake, don't dwell on it. Just shake it off and move on. That's what Jesus taught us. Hey, you'll never get shook up if you learn to shake off. Just shake it off. Keep moving. Well, we move right into chapter 14. Now, it happened in Iconium. We're 90 miles up the road now from Antioch. That They went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. And this is a serious sin. Whenever you poison someone's mind against God. You know, it's been said, the only thing better than going to heaven is taking someone with you. True. But the only thing worse than going to hell is taking someone with you. And these Jews were doing the latter. They were sabotaging the salvation of the Gentiles by stirring up rumors and gossip against Paul. You know, gossip is always an awful sin. But especially when it's directed at God's messenger. When you sour a person's attitude with baseless accusations about a pastor or about a church... You cripple that person's ability to receive God's word from the the church. You harm them spiritually and often it can cost them their salvation. Boy, that's why we need to guard our tongue. He goes on, Therefore they stayed there for a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Wow, miracles were occurring. 
They're in Iconium. But the multitude of the city was divided. Part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. You know, sometimes we think that any kind of discord, oh, that must be the devil. Not necessarily. Sometimes it's the gospel. Remember what Jesus said, Luke 12, verse 51? Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. Men are reconciled in Christ, but first they are divided by Christ. You are either in Christ or outside Christ. You're either lost or you're found. You're either a saint or you're an ain't. One of the two. Before he brings us together, he first divides us. Verse 5. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it. And they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laconia, and to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. Boy, Paul's getting kicked around more than a football. He now goes to Lystra, 18 miles southwest of Iconium. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. Now, it wasn't that he couldn't walk. He had never walked. He was born with a birth defect. Now, this man heard Paul speaking. And Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. Now what tipped Paul off that the crippled man had faith to be healed? We're not sure. Perhaps it was the gift of discernment. Maybe a gift of knowledge. Whatever it was, Paul ordered this man to his feet. And notice what happened. He leaped and he walked. A miracle. A man who had never walked before. He starts leaping and walking. Verse 11. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes... Because he was the chief speaker. Now remember when Paul arrived in Antioch in Iconium, he went first to the Jewish synagogue. But in Lystra, there was no synagogue. Uh, the Talmud said it takes ten men to make a synagogue. Apparently there were less than ten Jews living in the city of Lystra. Unlike the bigger cities, Lystra was backwoods. It was a hick town, you might say. The folks in Lystra were uneducated and superstitious. They were simple and excitable. They worshipped the Greek pantheon of gods. And they walked on pins and needles lest they offend one. And that's what motivated them here. The Roman poet Ovid told a tale about a couple who happened to live in the region around Lystra. The Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes, came to earth disguised as humans. But everywhere they journeyed, they were shunned by the locals, except two peasants. When they arrived at their hut, this couple showed them great, warm hospitality. Afterwards, the two travelers, they took the couple to the top of a mountain, where the people of the region were wiped out. 
But their hut was turned into a beautiful temple. And for the remainder of their lives, this couple served as caretakers of this temple. When they died, they were actually transformed into two trees and planted by its entrance. Or so the story goes, told by Ovid. Well, these residents of Lystra, they were into this kind of mythology and superstition. And they didn't want to make the same mistake as the townspeople at the time. Because of the miracle, they assumed that once again the gods had come incognito. Since Paul did most of the talking, they figured he was Hermes, the messenger god, and Barnabas was Zeus. Well, then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul saw this, heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same... Man, we put our britches on the same way you do. We have the same nature as you. And we preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them. Now, I believe this was the most dangerous moment in Paul's life. Forget the stonings, the beatings, the jailings, the shipwrecks. This was the most dangerous moment Paul ever faced. And I'll tell you why. When explorer James Cook came to the Hawaiian Islands, the natives there thought that he too was a god, their god, Lono. But rather than correcting the assumption, Cook enjoyed the ruse. For weeks, he let them treat him like a god. The natives catered to his every whim. One night, he was about to take advantage of yet another woman when her husband snuck up and clubbed this god over the head. Well, the blow staggered Cook. He started to bleed and moan. He eventually passed out. And the islanders rightly concluded that gods don't bleed. So when Cook woke up, they accused him of deceit and they murdered him on the spot. Now, Paul could have pulled a James Cook. He could have enjoyed the perks. But how quickly he rushes in to diffuse any misconceptions. He sets the record straight. He says, man, I'm just a man. You need to turn from your worthless myths to the living God. But I wonder, if the same opportunity happened to you, how many of you would pull a James Cook and bask in the limelight and in the attention just for a little while? How many of you would steal the thunder and steal the limelight that's reserved only for God? Boy, we all would be tempted. This is why the most dangerous moment in our life, it's not the down times, but it's when the people sing our praises and they laud our accomplishments and they think more highly of us and talk more highly of us than they, than we, than they should. The most dangerous moments are when we read our press clippings. Are we going to humble ourselves? Give the glory to God? Or are we going to steal that glory? 
Remember, Paul changed his name to small for a reason. It was a constant reminder that it's really all about God. Well, Paul continues with a sermon about this living God. He says, Who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways? Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven in fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with fruit and gladness. Now, remember in Antioch, Paul spoke to Jews. And thus he preached Christ by rehearsing Israel's history. Here he's speaking to Gentiles. They have no idea about Israel's history. So what does he do? He starts with creation and with nature. Paul's a great example for us. We need to learn to tailor our witness to our audience's frame of reference. We need to meet people where they're at. These people knew nothing of Israel history. They knew the seasons. They knew about crops and agriculture. And that's where Paul starts. God gave us fruitful seasons and filled our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to him. Man, it was a frenzy. Reason wasn't guiding this crowd. But the problem gets compounded. For then the Jews from Antioch and Iconium, they came there. And having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul. And they dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. They picked up stones and they pelted him with rocks until they thought he was dead. Well, here's proof of the crowd's fickleness. Up until now, they're one step from offering a sacrifice to Paul. But the Jews who opposed him finally show up in Antioch or finally show up there in Lystra. And they start mixing and mingling with the crowd. And they start playing on their superstitions and their fears. And it doesn't take long for them to get them all excited and hyped up. They're able to turn a worship service into a lynching mob. And this happens more than you think. Every day the media in our country uses its ability to shape public perception to create heroes and create villains. And it's, it's amazing. One day you can be the hero, and the next day you can be the villain. And you didn't change. They can alter a person's image without a change ever taking place in their character. Well, this is what happened to Paul. The pagans made him out to be more than he was. The Jews rush in, make him out less than he was. Thus he goes from hero to bozo in their eyes in a few minutes. Paul goes from receiving sacrifices to being the sacrifice. Verse 20, however, when the disciples gathered around him. Now imagine this scene. Paul has been pelted with rocks. He's a mess. His body, what's left of it, it's covered with dust and mud and blood. He's been pelted with rocks. There's scars all over his body. He's laying there, a crumpled heap. His friends have all gathered around him. And what are they doing? They're planning a funeral. They, they probably check his wallet to see if he's an organ donor. Somebody wants to notify the next of kin. Somebody sizes him up for a new suit. They think he's dead. They're planning his demise. When all of a sudden, notice what's next. He rose up and he went into the city. 
what they thought was a corpse suddenly wakes up, staggers to his feet, balances himself, brushes himself off the dust and blood, and then he heads right back into the city to do what? To finish his sermon. What courage! Here's a guy with guts. I'm sure his enemy scratched their head and said, how do you stop a man like this? And the answer, you don't. Paul was devoted and he was determined. And the next day, he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. Now, years later, Paul is going to write to the Corinthians about a special experience. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, Paul says that he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. In other words, Paul visited heaven. He saw sights that words cannot express. He also says in that passage, and he wasn't really sure whether he was in the body or out of the body, whether it was a vision or whether he was actually dead. You know, Jewish literature records four rabbis who caught a glimpse of paradise. The first rabbi, Rabbi Azai, he looked on heaven and he died as a result. He couldn't handle it. The second, Rabbi Zoma, looked into heaven and went nuts as a consequence. The third, Rabbi Abuya, lacked the wisdom to handle the knowledge. And he became prideful and he turned into a heretic. Only one rabbi, Rabbi Akiba, survived the experience unscathed. You know, some of us bemoan the fact that the Bible doesn't tell us more about heaven. We wish we knew. I think, though, the problem isn't God's reluctance to reveal as much as it is our inability to receive. Heaven is too heavy, man, for mortal men to handle. It's such a heavy reality. We wouldn't know what to do with the knowledge if we received it. Paul says, I saw things in heaven that, that's not lawful for me to even utter. It's too heavy for us to handle here on earth. Now, what's significant about Paul's revelation in 2 Corinthians is that he pinpoints the time of his vision to his first missionary journey into Galatia. You remember Stephen saw heaven opened while he was being stoned. You remember that? He saw Jesus seated, standing next to the right hand of God. Perhaps the heavens also opened to Paul during his stoning here in Lystra. And this was the experience that, that he reports later, I was caught up into paradise. Well, verse 21, And when they had preached the gospel to that city, to Derbe, and made many disciples, notice the Jews didn't follow Paul to Derbe. They finally gave up. Here he's able to minister to the Gentiles without Jewish interference. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Notice, they went right back the way they came. They followed the same path out that they followed in, strengthening the souls of the disciples. You know, it would have been easier, closer for them to march eastward over the Tarsus Mountains back down into Syria to Antioch, but they didn't do that. They backtracked. Why? They needed to organize the believers into churches. They needed to strengthen the believers in their newfound faith. They were concerned about the believers they'd left behind. And they went through these cities, exhorting them to continue in the faith, saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Notice this. 
This is true for all of us. Persecution is a reality. It's part of the training of a disciple. As the poem puts it, can he have followed far? Who has no wound, no scar? We're all going to be persecuted for our faith. If they crucified Jesus, what do you think they're going to do to you? Nobody escapes persecution in the Christian life. That's why real faith is a persevering faith. It keeps on keeping on. Paul went back to encourage them. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Now later, in Galatians chapter 6, Paul writes this letter back to these people he's just visited. Apparently, some of the people in Galatia had been questioning Paul's sincerity, the sincerity of his faith. And he answers them by recalling the stoning he took in Lystra. He says this, Let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. To prove his sincerity, he points to his scars. And where did he get these scars? When he was stoned. Paul's saying, If any of you doubt my love for Jesus, just take a look at my scars. As a matter of fact, one man was influenced by those scars. Paul reminds Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that he was a witness to this stoning. Guess where Timothy was born and raised? Lystra. In the town of Lystra. Timothy saw Paul's faithfulness in the face of persecution firsthand. He was there. He saw the stoning. Paul writes back and says, Timothy, you know the sincerity of my faith. Well, so when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Notice, Paul appointed the elders. In Acts chapter 6, the the deacons were selected by the church, but the elders were and still are selected by the existing elders. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Ataliah. Notice this time Paul preaches in the city of Perga. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. They're back. Round trip ticket. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there as Paul recounted all of these wonderful things, the miracles, the things that had happened while they'd been gone? And that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. That was the real miracle. And so they stayed there a long time with the disciples. This first missionary journey had lasted now three years. And they won't really be resting for long. There's a second missionary journey on the horizon. But first, they've got to go to a pastor's conference down in Jerusalem. And that's where we'll follow Paul next week. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you, Lord, for uh, everyone's attention and interest. Lord, I pray that we could all glean different truths from the message tonight. What a wonderful couple of chapters. What incredible things you did through the ministry of Paul. And Lord, we ask that you repeat them today. We pray, Lord, that we too can be a part of your miracles and part of seeing the Gentiles come to know Jesus. 
through faith, through grace. We love you, Lord. And we ask that you give us the same kind of determination, same kind of devotion and boldness that was true of Paul and Barnabas. Work in our hearts, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.